Hitting revenue targets is hard and requires constant hustle. Last quarter's success is already forgotten. Learn the mindset and tactics of today's most successful revenue producers in B2B marketing and sales. We call this the revenue hustle. I'm your host, Tom Hessen, navigating you on this journey. Today's show is sponsored by Nine Lenses, an interactive assessment platform that enables you to add instant value to your buyers and allows your sales team to tailor business conversations focused on the pain points each and every time. Check them out at NineLenses.com. Hi, this is Tom Hessen with The Revenue Hustle and the CEO of Nine Lenses, and I have the distinct honor of having Heather Tenuto with me today on The Revenue Hustle. Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, so let me give a little bit of intro to Heather and her awesome background. I'll let you uh, elaborate, Heather. Um, so Heather's currently the Chief Revenue Officer at Ziff Solutions, which I'll let her describe what that uh, amazing software platform does. Uh, her previous role to that was the VP of Sales of SMB Services and Indirect Channels at Office Depot and Office Max. So I'm sure there's a really strong connection there. So you've got a long history of sales, um, Heather, Give us a little bit more color on your your roles and your your background. Sure. So, uh, thank, thanks again for having me. Um, you know, my career really started um, in indirect channels. I was a I was a English major in college, so of course I had I didn't know what to do when I finished that. So, um, my first real job was selling technology for a technology reseller, and uh, it, you know things kind of happened from there. So, um, I have spent a lot of time selling technology, especially through um, technology resellers, and got very interested in how that can affect sales acceleration. And uh, before Office Depot, I was the channel chief at a few different tech companies. And so now I've kind of brought that all together. Um, This solution sells a platform that helps companies who sell through the channel manage their channels and help create revenue from their channels. Everything you need in order to accelerate revenue from channel partners, um, we can do on our platform. So my background in uh, selling through the channel, purchasing that kind of software, and just in revenue acceleration um, in a direct way too, came together and I found this great role um, about a year ago at Ziff Solutions and here I am talking to you. I agree. That sounds like a great fit of all your experiences. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about your revenue rules. And for those of you that may be new to the show, we call you know, these revenue rules, these core beliefs that our guests have as it relates to driving revenue, either from marketing or sales or, or both. And so, Heather, I'm just going to let you jump right in. What is your first revenue rule? Well, not surprisingly, it's about indirect uh, revenue. So what, what my revenue is... My revenue rule is indirect channel revenue growth can only be achieved through highly defined partner roles and relationships. So that was a mouthful, so I'll say it again. Indirect channel revenue growth can only be achieved through highly defined partner roles and relationships. And I I don't know much about channels. I'm gonna ask you a lot of questions. Um, So tell us why you came to that and what does that really mean? I know channel's hard, it's harder to sell through a channel. But just unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, so it might be harder. I mean, I think selling in general is hard, right? But what I think happens is, and what I see happening a lot in my past roles and my current role, there are a a lot of companies make the decision to sell through an indirect channel. Um, And that usually comes out of 
running into some roadblocks in their direct uh, selling strategy. So like, wouldn't it be cool if we could get people to sell this stuff for us is, is generally the first thought. And it is cool, right? It is cool to get people outside your company selling your stuff, but it's not easy and it takes a lot of pre-work. Uh, it takes not only all this, a lot of the same work you're doing for your direct sellers, but creating um, a great environment for partners that they, they want to be compelled to sell to sell your products or your services. So there's some very fundamental work that needs to be done um, before you can start build building your channel strategy. And what I find is a lot of suppliers that want to go this route to market miss some of those fundamental steps. And is that just because they don't know what they don't know? It just seems good and they just jump in and they just start picking anybody that's interested in selling their stuff and then all these problems? Yeah, I think so. And I think sometimes it happens by accident, right? Like you may, a partner calls and says, hey, we could sell this stuff. There's a few wins in the beginning and it's like, we should be able to scale this, right? Because it happened once, we could let's make it happen again. Um, but it doesn't always work that way, right? So you've got to put the work in uh, in the beginning to lay the foundation in order to make sure that the few successes you may have had in the beginning are going to be continued successes as you go on. And it's an investment, right? Like it, the return on investment um, is going to come, but it takes a little bit of time, and you want to make sure that you're decreasing that return on investment time frame by starting off on the right foot. Right. And is this just something that people just naturally step into? Just like you said, they just kind of go and, and they just learn this the hard way. And, and so what are some of the manifestations of the problem that you see when they're not that selective? Like it's just, they hit a wall, like those, those clients, those early partners, they, they win a couple times, but then they just kind of die. Like what are some of the implications of not being highly defined when you pick your partners? Yeah, I think, I think that's one of them, right? Like, um, you hear from a partner, we think we can sell this, we have an opportunity, and it goes really well. Um, maybe they sell another one, and then all of a sudden, there's nothing, right? So when, when that's happening, you know that you haven't done um, all the work you need to do in the beginning. Um, I think that there's also, um, if you're just hearing about excitement about the channel and not really seeing the proof points come through, um, that's another, you know, I've run into that all the time where there was so much excitement in the partner community about our product or service and it just never really materialized. Um, you know, channel sellers in the channel community are amazing people and they have a lot of energy. Um, and focusing that energy and making sure it turns into revenue for your company um, is the work that has to be done. And so what are some of those steps? So if you think about like, what would you recommend if I was to, you know, at Nine Lenses, we start a channel partner program. What are you advising me to do to kind of avoid this pitfall and to kind of really achieve the revenue growth? So that's a great question. The first step is really understanding the customer journey, not the partner journey, the customer journey. What journey do you want to take your prospect and customers on? and who are they and how ideally do you want them to interact with your product and service and so that sound that knowing that right and being having organizational alignment around that 
is a best practice for every company, not just companies that want to start channel programs. However, it's very rare that I've consulted or joined an organization and gone in and found that kind of alignment, right? One of my first moves, right? When I'm doing a, a consulting gig or, or starting a new role, I said, are we aligned on the customer journey? And everyone, you either get the answer, yes, we are. And then I say, okay, show it to me. And in a meeting, somebody shows it to me, somebody objects, right? There's not real alignment, right? Around what that journey, what that customer looks like and what that journey is. And then sometimes people say, no, we're not. <laughs> like we argue about this all the time in the meetings. We're not aligned. So the first step is making sure everyone, marketing and sales and finance is sort of aligned around who the customer is and what's the best experience for them. Then once you have that in place, you can start to talk about partners and what roles do we want partners to play is it just about bringing us new leads? Is it about helping us install? Is it about helping us do renewals? Is it about engagement and training? Like where is the partner going to play in that customer journey? And, and that's changed over time, right? Like it, 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 when you look at the history of indirect channels from resellers now to MSPs or referral or influencer partners, that role has changed significantly and it's different for every supplier. So making sure you know where you want your partners to add value, to have connections with the customer and where you don't want them. And so once there, you can envision that, the third step is creating, making sure there's partners that are interested in that, right? Doing some profiling, you know, is this something that there are partners out there that actually could do? And then making sure you're creating a program that incents the partners in all those places. And it's not always just paying them, right? But just why would the partner want to do this thing for you? Is it because they're going to get money or because they're going to be able to sell more to that customer? And so those are the three building blocks, I would say, that the hard work to make sure you're going to market, going to the channel with something um, solid. And there's a lot that comes after that, but those are the building blocks. Right. And so one of the things that I hear a lot about, both from selling and, and, and marketing, is the, the customer journey. And I think of that as the sales process that we're, you know, taking a customer down, which is different from their journey through like they're, they're interacting with content or something on the web. You know, they may get introductions to the vendor through other you know, people in places and, and then, but they do have touch points with, you know, nine lenses or, or the vendor and, you know, what are we talking about? What are we demonstrating? What's the sales process? Um, is it a free trial? Is it a, you know, is it a discovery call? All sorts of these things. And then they ultimately lead to a decision. Like, mm -hmm. what do you see? How do you think about the customer journey just from, you know, at the B2B space, not necessarily channel or, or direct, but just how do you think about the customer journey? When you say, do you, are we aligned on the customer journey? What does that mean to you? Yeah. So I think it starts with what you just said, like the, the prospect or customer's very first interactions with us as a company, right? What do we look like on the web? Um, how are we how are we looking for these customers? How are they looking for us? So so there's some attention obviously that needs to be paid there and then 
for me as a chief revenue officer my whole life in sales almost my whole life in sales um getting to that decision we spent a lot of time thinking about what it needs to feel and look like for us and for the customer to get to that decision point the, the, that's just the very beginning of the journey especially in um a recurring revenue world which obviously there's a lot of that around today because it's great to have recurring revenue but at some point there's a renewal <laughs> that has to happen and there's the other thing is churn right churn happens and 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 we, we could talk all day about like the effect that you know churn has on not only um companies but their their channels so it's really everything from engaging with the customer through the decision what's their experience going to be with with us as they use our product as service and then what about that renewal how 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 are we going to make sure that that's going to happen again and again and again so it's really about all of it and when i map this out usually for people the end point is the is the time they decide to churn like we hope we never get there but when we do like how is that going to go um and once we've defined everything through that then i think you have a complete customer journey yes yes and i think sometimes it's common to not focus on the life as the customer as part of in the renewal right i think a lot of companies focus on the acquisition but not too much in the in the subsequent uh parts of that journey um, yeah yeah and that's a really big problem for partners right because a lot of times partners are just not in it for what you're, they're selling for you they're in it for what all the other stuff they may be doing so the fact that you're ignoring the, the customer experience once it's been decided like that's going to be a problem for the partner and that's why it's really important we align on the whole journey with our channel strategy right and then i can imagine so creating the partner profile that's kind of like step two and that just takes some time and thought and then how do you go about finding and reaching out to a partner right so if the, i guess you start with people that may know you and you know them um and, and kind of the friends and family partner approach that fit the profile but what are common tactics for reaching out and engaging partners so there, there's great there's great tools out there um around partner profiling and finding the people like based on your criteria finding the organizations that are going to be a good fit um, and there there are a few companies that do that very very well once you find them it's not very different than you know account-based marketing right and, and or, or or selling um they have to see uh the value in doing business with you so how do we communicate to those partners you know we could use marketing automation tools all the things we do for customers we can do for partners and then we you know on the other side of that we have uh uh, human-based salespeople <laughs> that right. that that can that focus on the recruiting of these partners and positioning that value proposition. Uh, proposition. In some organizations, you know, we, we the CAMs have that responsibility. Sometimes it's very specialized, but it we should be treating it with as much care uh, and curation, uh, to use that word, um, that we do with our customers. Right. Right. Right, because that can be a real cost if if you bring on partners that don't actually produce any revenue, um, you know. So you want to spend a lot of time and effort getting the right ones, 
right? It's, That's right. it's like you're you're getting married to these partners, just like you are to your customer. Um, and and there's pros and cons to having, uh, you know, good ones and bad ones. And so I, you know, the one thing that I've, you know, experienced just being around sales, you know, my whole career as well, is that it's hard for the channel. So you're, you know, as if you're in enablement, right? Your platform is helping your customers enable their channel partners to better market and sell to the end customer. And I've got that correct, right? At, at the elevator pitch. Um, it's, yeah, it's a big part of what we do, definitely. But it's difficult, right? It's even if you did all those three steps right, it's still challenging to get um, partners to deliver the right pitch, deliver the right value, um, keep abreast of all the new capabilities and solutions and offerings. I mean, is there, there's just still additional challenges, right? Even if you got those three steps right. And that's kind of part of the program and all the other kind of maintenance. And like, just talk a little bit about that element of just, you know, driving success once you have those three steps in place. Yeah, so I, I call this perpetual onboarding. Right. So like what we do is once we find the partner and convince the partner that that you want to invest in little a little bit with us, um, there's generally an onboarding program. And here's how we're going to teach you all the things about us and to make you successful selling our product or service. But it doesn't stop there. Right. So there, there's a there's a nurturing of that relationship. Um, and there's and then things change right and and so the idea is to keep them engaged right keep the partners enabled which results in really good engagement um so that they're they're doing all the things you know that are going to produce revenue the problem with that and, and you said it before if i don't have the right partners and i'm putting these resources into those partners it's going to be very expensive and i'm not going to have a good cost of acquisition of customers through an indirect channel so we have to make sure we have the right partners and we also have to use our resources wisely so having um, a technology platform which is you know, something that Zip sells, but we certainly, there are certainly others out there that is going to automate as much of that as possible. And, and, and while creating a great experience for the partner, making you easy to do business with is really important because, you know, back in the day when I, you know, when I, I'm talking, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, let's just hire more people, right? Let's hire more channel account managers to nurture these partners, partners on selling, let's get someone in there. Um, and some, some relationships are definitely worth that kind of investment, but taking your, your most valuable resources and focusing the cams and focusing them on the actual revenue driving, um, the revenue driving activities and, and not any of the administrative activities, right? And making marketing easy uh, is is the way to go, and that's why thinking about this, you know, a lot before we just start throwing bodies at the problem is really important. Right, and and so having, you know, what's that experience like to be the channel partner, right? Because it seems like you're always, you know, it's easy to at least for me to envision what the the vendor side is because we're the ones building the solution and then trying to get other people to sell it. Like, what are some of the points coming from the channel to saying it's you know, whether it's hard to do business or I can't keep up or I don't know, you know, how to go out and engage. Like, what are some of the challenges that they say about 
you know, a typical relationship? Like what, what would you say their challenges are? Well, I think it depends on the industry, right? But when, we, when we're talking about, you know, uh, software or technology, the partners have a lot of choices, right? And it wasn't so 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and so they, they, could, they could decide to partner with everybody. And I think we sort of went through that. And, and, and that doesn't really work for them. So they're looking at who are gonna, who's gonna be their most strategic relationships. And these relationships are, you know, they go to a, somebody reminded me of this on LinkedIn, like the suppliers are trying to create these relationships with the partners and that takes effort. The partners wanna reciprocate, right? And there's only so many suppliers they can do that with. So, so the partners are feeling probably a little bit overwhelmed, right? They get lots of offers and lots of suppliers coming at them, especially if they have a robust, robust customer base. And then, okay, I decide this, this product is a, has a lot of value for my business. I'm going to partner. It, it becomes difficult. Like channel programs can sometimes be really difficult to navigate and difficult to understand. And very administrative and we hear a lot of complaints about that right suppliers need to make it as simple as they possibly can and what what we've been saying a lot is a great partner experience is going to lead to a great customer experience you've got to treat your partners like you want them to treat your customers and so having these seamless interactions and making things easy uh not hard to understand, not hard to implement is really important. And I've been part of some channel organizations where we had to take a lot of complexity out of, you know, you need these kinds of certifications unless you have 10 people and then you need these kinds of certifications. And, you know, if you want to market, we have a different platform for you to go do that um, and, and manage eight different logins to do business with us. Like that has to go away. Right. We've just got, it's it's got to be easier. Right, because it's hard enough, and then to add those extra layers of work, and it's just not going to get there. You're just they're just going to go to another provider, another vendor, right? In yeah. situations like that. Yeah, I mean, who whoever's the easiest to work with is going to win, um, and so suppliers are competing for partner attention, and often it's with oh, you know, we have the best incentive program. Um, but really, to me, what's more important than that, and obviously incentive has to be there, but it's we're easy to do business with. You're not going to spend a lot of your precious time administrating or pro administ in administrative items of our program. And two, you're, we're going to help you make happy customers. Um, those are the places where we have to focus. Right. No, that's great. No, that's... Um... You know, that's a deep dive channel. I don't know if that's a 101, 201, or 301 level class on channel right there you just gave us, Heather, but uh, that was fantastic. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of interest in the channel just because, like you said, it's an easy cost to sale from the solution side, at least seemingly, right? I don't have to hire salespeople. I can just partner with these organizations and they can make the calls for us or, you know, do the marketing and, and source opportunities and I just get, you know, the, the contribution. Um, from their from their efforts, so it's it's definitely tempting for a lot of companies. I mean, we're doing it in a light way with very strategic partners at Nine Lenses, so it's it's just something that I've been very keen on learning more about, and and um, I'm glad you chose that as one of your revenue rules. Um, so you had another fascinating rule that I want you to kind of transition to now, just about your experience as a 
sales manager and what it's like to lead a you know team of sellers. So I'm just gonna let you uh, take it from here. What's your second revenue rule? So my second revenue rule is sales managers are teachers, not bosses. Um, and so just think, so a little context on why I think this. So I talked before how I spent almost my whole life in, in tech and channel sales, but I did take a break. Um, I, I left uh, sales and for two years, I um, worked on getting my master's degree while I taught um, high school English in a hard to staff school in New York City. And it was probably the most impactful two years of my life. Wow. I enjoyed that very, very much um, and, and realized really how, how difficult a job it, it would be. But the lesson, <laughs> or that it is for teachers today, especially now, but the lesson I took out of that um, was that when I went back into sales and then in my role as a sales leader, being a teacher versus a boss, especially with salespeople, produces much better results. Um, and and I use that I use that all the time. And and so, I mean, obviously, teaching is. I think a critical part of being a good boss, right? Because you're always, I mean, A, you should be learning yourself and and B, the per people that you're working with should be always learning. Um, so like why teaching? Like why, like how did you come to that? I mean, obviously you had a great experience in the the New York City school, um, but what does that look like, you know, as on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, because you have a team now, um, how do you teach your team? So the thing about teaching, so I've, I've been with my, uh, my company a little over a year and, and, and all the salespeople at my company have been there longer than I have, right? So as far as me teaching them about the product, right? It, it, that's not gonna happen. They know a lot more about it than, than I do, although I, I'm doing my best to catch up. But getting them to understand how my past experience can help them and, and can add, and having that experience can enrich their sales experience. Um, and just sort of the, um, the methodologies that I have to offer with being able to close new business, um, it, it's gonna help them. And so it's this idea that um, I can tell them what those things are. And I could say, do go do this. This is your job. Now go do this. Um, doesn't really change behavior. Right. And so, we, and I think you and I, what last time we spoke, we're talking a lot about like, what's my role in a sales call, for instance, when I've been asked to join. And it's very hard because there's money at the other end of this call, right? Like if this call goes right, somebody's <laughs> going to pay us. And so your every ounce of your being wants to uh, jump in and do it, right? I'm going to do it. And um, there's, a, there's a time for doing it, but there's also more time for not doing it. And it's hard. So there's this, this model, right, of uh, mentoring and coaching. And it's in four steps, right? The first step is I do. I'm the coach. I do. And you watch. The second step is I'm going to do it and you're going to help me. The third step is you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. And the fourth step is you're going to do it and I'm just going to watch. Right. And so the life of a yeah. sales rep, when you think about your team, like where is each of your people 
like where can they fit in that plot to say what what my job is on on that sales call when we're together is dependent on the experience they have and where they are um, in those four steps and then your role uh, is defined by that yeah I think that is a fantastic framework and I am I struggle with that same problem um, you know I get you know pulled into sales calls and and I and I love it I love being on sales calls um, you know I'm a seller at heart and you know I think just with experience you come to problems differently than someone maybe earlier in their career and you're able to kind of process kind of maybe a bigger picture view of maybe what the, the buyer is thinking and hearing that's coming from you know the discussion with the rep and you know I've I honestly struggle to to not jump in because like you said there's dollars on the line and you know it's it's kind of the do you do you become overactive you know and and you know at the risk of letting your rep not learn or, or have that opportunity to to grow and and to take that call versus you know not and risk the call not going as well as it could have been or having to kind of jump in late and steer it you know, if, if you have to, right? And I think that's, this is a great framework and I'm gonna write, I, I've already written it down, but just for me personally on how to assess each individual rep and what my role should be going in and then also coaching them on how I think about where they are and how I should be, or I'm thinking about participating in the call. Like, do you have those conversations like with this framework or is it something you just kind of carry around in your back pocket? Well, I, I, I think what, so, I, it's in my back pocket for sure, but I think it's all about prep, right? Like, don't don't let yourself get invited to a call where you're not talking to the rep beforehand. Say, okay, how's this going to go? <laughs> like, what's my role? What's your role? How is this going to run? And I, I know that seems obvious, but we all make that mistake where um, we don't do that prep um, and define roles before the call. And you don't have to say, you know, I, I heard this really cool thing on a podcast and I'm going to do and you're going to help. <laughs> but but in your head, you know, like what it is you're going to do. Right. And, uh, so so I, I think, you know, pro tip and everyone knows it, but we forget it is do not jump on a call blind. Do not let them suck you into jumping in a call blind. Like you need to get me for five or 10 minutes beforehand where we're going to discuss how this is going to work. Um, if you think about it, um, when I was a high school teacher, I, I mostly taught ninth grade to kids who really were struggling with reading. They had made it all the way to high school and, and, and didn't have basic literacy uh, because the school system had failed them and they, they couldn't read so well. So you can imagine if I, you know, we were reading a book and I had a kid who was very nervous about reading stand up and say, here, answer this question about, I don't know, what Juliet said to Romeo in the scene. And they started to answer and I interrupted and said, no, you're off track. This is how it went. Like, think about how that would destroy, you know, that student. And I think salespeople are the same way, right? Like, we, yes. we, we can't, like, the, the, we're doing this in, 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 in the class, you're doing it in front of other students, right? And with sales, you're doing it in front of the customer. We can't course correct blatantly in the middle of a sales call. And that patience not to do that, I learned being a teacher um, because these are children, right? That and and they're they're being they're surrounded by their peers at a very difficult age. And so now, I, I, if any one of my team is listening to me, they're like, she interrupts me sometimes, and I do. I'm not perfect at this. 
but I know that it goes better when I lean on my the right. patience I learned as a teacher. Um, the prep and then the review, right? The homework. Okay, we got off this call. Let's talk about what went well and what didn't, and how are we going to do it different next time? Now that's fantastic. And so, as you know, you're dealing with a, you know a number of uh, account executives on your team, and and have been around sales for a long time. What are some of the things today that you think reps like you you find yourself coaching your reps on? Like some of the things I I you know talk about is like discovery, right? Like you know, that's what our technology does. We are, we're helping sales reps, you know, use interactive assessments to better engage their buyers, help them understand their own business pains, and, and then helping the, the seller navigate these conversations because they have more intelligence about the buyer before the call. So, like, that's always centered to, you know, to my thinking. But it's it's still not easy to just get on a call and not knowing a lot about the buyer, right, and their pain points or what they think the pain points are, and then having the seller just starting to ask a bunch of questions and connect a bunch of dots on the fly. Like, I think that's one area where we're, I'm always coaching. I'm curious, where are you finding your coaching today? Like, is it in the beginning of the sales process, middle or the end, kind of all of the above? Is there any specific things that you're very, you know, keen on coaching? So I think one of them is related to what you just said. I, you know, discovery obviously is very important, and and we spend a lot of time, you know, talking about what you know where our where our value and differentiators are, and and how to dis to find out if if through discovery if there's those issues exist. The problem is you spend so much time thinking about, and sales reps do this all the time, what they're going to ask. They they don't really listen very well, and so. One of the benefits I found of being on a call and not leading and not talking is that I'm doing a lot of the listening. And it never ceases to amaze me when I do that, what I hear that the sales rep completely missed, right? Like it's almost like we were on different calls. And so learning how to ask questions and be a good listener is really important because you can't always have a second person on the call. But you know, this active listening, really listening to what the person is saying, and then thinking deeply when you get off the call about what that really means um, is one place where we focus. Um, the other, I would say the other place is, you know, I had a, um, a sales manager and he, he would always say uh, price before value equals no sale every time. And it's this sort of rush to say, okay, I found your pain. Here's what it is. <laughs> Here's what it's going to cost. And, and go without really aligning sort of, you know, the cost of our solution, the investment they're going to have to make with the, the pain or, 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 or the, um, the needs, the unmet needs that they express, right? There, there's, a, there's being careful about that connection is another place where I think um, I spend a lot of my time. Well, that's, that's yeah, that's, that's great. Um... So I guess I have two questions about that. One, if someone asks you about price, you can't dodge it because then it's like you're sketchy, you're you're hiding something, right? Like, is it is it ten million dollars and you're not going to tell me yet? Or, you know, so you know those first calls, if it does go well, people want to generally know like, is this something I can afford? And that's what I'm trying to tell my reps is they're not trying to ask, you know, down to the dollar, right? Because you can't typically provide that at this stage. But they're just trying to answer the question, can I afford it or can I, is it even the realm of possibility? But how do you think about, you know, providing price in, in 
you know, when somebody asks early in the process? Yeah, I, I we I just got off a call with a rep before this that we were we were talking about this one. Um, the person who qualified the call gave a range, and I like this, right? And 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 I think it's fair that you have to kind of like island shelf about what what is it what is this and about how much is it going to cost, right? So it, it depends on a lot of things, but it's going to usually for a company your size, it's between this and this, and it, it, you know, give a big enough range now they're always going to hear the lower number, right? right? And expect that that's what the price is going to be. Um, but early on, I think you have to, not only for their, their own good, but yours, right? If someone really doesn't have that kind of cash, <laughs> like you want to get them out of your life right. as quickly as possible. So I think this bracketing methodology works. Um, I would say to my reps though, like, be careful because they're only going to they're really only going to hear the lower the lower number um and so you're going to have to take them there to where they they actually might end up based on what their needs are like if they need certain things then they're going to have to pay for them um and i think that wait you know waiting that's enough to kind of get you started and then kind of coming with more concrete pricing as we go work sometimes i mean there's always a customer that wants the, like you know the price list you know or right. the order form right from the beginning um and i think that's a tough one to win right and then uh, you know i've heard and I, I guess i've read this just about like the kind of the buckets where you can say well there are some companies or customers that will spend between a and b we have some that will do b and c and then some between d and e right and there's like three major buckets and you could say, well, I don't think you're this one or that one and, and start to just kind of narrow it down to like two out of the three. So you could either eliminate the low one or the high one. But you're also indicating that there's a lot of span, you know, if that does exist. And again, I guess it does just to what degree. But it, it allows you to give multiple ranges based on some high level classification of these buckets. Which yeah, no, I, I, th yeah, I think that's ahead. great. You should try it. Let me know how it goes. Okay. The, the other thing that I I have implemented from a sales process, I'm curious because you're in software, is I find that a lot of software companies are always eager to rush to a demo. And I yeah. think that is like I, I forget what you, what you said is like it's like a guaranteed no sale. But if you are like trying to show the product in the first conversation, you don't even know what to show. Or, yeah. you know, or, or why are you showing it? It's all of a sudden about like clicks and modules and, you know, and, and it's, you're not talking about business problems. And, and so that's always one thing I personally find is, is to push the demo back to when you're actually trying to solve a problem with it. I'm just curious um, kind of what your view is on that. Yeah, no, I'm with you. So I, you know, I, I've heard like, I think I agree with what you said. I, I want to push the demo as far back as I can. I've heard people suggest use the demo to do the discovery, and I think that's really hard. So um, I want to push the demo back as far as possible. And so, uh, and we had this conversation this week, I guess yesterday, because only I think it's Tuesday, right? <laughs> um, yeah. With my team. So what the, you need some tools if you want to be able to do that. So when when a when you're going through this discovery call, if it's just discovery and me asking questions, and then 
okay, we're done and we're going to schedule a demo. I don't, as a customer, necessarily feel like I got anything out of that call. Like I feel listened to, which is worth something. But so what we, we've done is start to put together, we, we know what our eight um, pain points or, you know, buckets of unmet needs, whatever you call them, we know what they are, right? And so if you've got pain in three of those eight places, like we can help you for sure. And so we've put together sort of a slide that outlines, you know, what that feels like. And then what a, a, another one of our customers has done to solve it. Right, so it's not a demo, but it's a proof point. Like, oh yeah, right. we've we've seen this before, and here's what we did. And so it may be visual, but not necessarily a demo. Right. And so the trick is, like, you know, you've got all eight at your at your uh, disposal, but you don't want to, you know, that would take forever, right? But knowing which three or four are going to resonate with the customer, making them feel like, okay, yeah, like that sounds like something exactly one. I can't wait to see it. And then scheduling that next call. But I'm with you. Once you start plugging around and giving this big overdue, our platform does a lot of stuff, right? So we can totally yeah. miss the mark in, if we're doing the demo too early. Yeah. I, and, and in some companies, I've called this the solution presentation. I like, I don't use the word demo. I just say it's a solution presentation because it's more it drives home the point that this presentation of our software is really does you know designed to solve your problems and it just is semantics sometimes can just change because everyone's like you know request a demo on our website you know so there's an expectation where they click the request a demo button i need to do something right and you know in my perspective that's just hey i, I want to have a conversation um but you know Call call a sales rep is probably not the best call to action button on a website for a software company anyway. And mm -hmm. so um, anyway, it's just something that I've been trying to do is just to reinforce the purpose of showing our software is, and I just call it the solution presentation uh, in our in our sales process, just as another you know way to reinforce the purpose of showing them something in our software, not to quote unquote sell them. Um, it's really just to verify what we've already talked about. Anyway, that's just my. I I, I love that, and I've been <laughs> I've been struggling with the term because I was calling like the, you know, I was saying baby demo and daddy demo to try to explain <laughs> what you just did. So I'm gonna get rid of those. And I'm gonna adopt solution presentation if you don't mind. No, go for it. That's great. Uh, I'm gonna steal some of your stuff too. So this is great. I'm gonna. Just ask you, Heather, how you got into sales. You talked a little bit about your background in teaching. You kind of had a little hiatus, but just tell us a little bit about your career and how you've, um, you know, some of the things you've sold, how you got into sales and, and um, you know, kind of where you see yourself going. Yeah, so um, I told you, I think I was an English major, right? And um, I graduated college and I actually had to move back home because my mom was ill and I was stuck in the house and a friend came over and he's like, gosh, you got to get out of the house. You know, my dad is um, selling computer monitors out of the garage and he needs someone to kind of help him with the billing. You know, why don't you just come by a few days a week and help him and get out of the house? And I was like, okay, that sounds good. I could walk there. And like within six months, we were on like a $3 million run rate out of the garage selling like monitors and keyboards. Wow. And I was just like, okay, like I found, this is my thing. Like I'm good at this. Um, and then I just went from there. Um, so I, I've, except for that hiatus as a teacher, um, I've been selling since then. And 
I, I, there was a shift for me though. I would say 2012, 2013. I don't know. I was getting older. Life, life events. I don't know. But what I, I found that I could be way more successful um, if I wasn't so focused on necessarily elbowing through my career and helping other people, the people around me with theirs. Um, and it paid me back in spades, right? And so I found a couple of people um, in networks that I had shunned before and just really started to focus on the sales community and the channel community. Um, and it created a much better uh, result for me of being a happy person and a successful sales leader. Um, and so that was, it's really hard because I feel like I've been like, I was fighting my whole life and just being able to take a step back and say, I'm gonna put somebody, you know, put my uh, network first for a while. It really, it really did well. It really worked for me. Uh, as far as where I go, I really love my job. I love, I love being the chief revenue officer at Zip. Um, and I think moving forward, whether I do this again or, or, or some other job in the future, I'm very focused on culture and how that affects revenue growth. Um, and, and so it'll always be with the company where I really like the people that I work with. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing the wisdom uh, that you did today. I, this was a great conversation. You know, there's always things that um, I just can't foresee that we touch on. And, and you've you dropped some real knowledge bombs today. So thank you for taking the time, being on the Revenue Hustle. And uh, let's do it again sometime in the, in the near future. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. All right. You bet. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Revenue Hustle. This episode has been brought to you by Nine Lenses. Close more deals with interactive assessments. Check them out at ninelenses.com. See you next time.